I think the collaborative process has been really inspiring. I've always liked the idea of taking elements from outside that you yourself didn't think of because I think the way that you treat those things and the way that you work with them in the context of a production or a song is going to be very different than if it's something you wrote. There could be something a little bit freeing and more spontaneous about that process for me. You just heard a little sample of the music that fuels our creative work. I've been listening to Tycho, also known as Scott Hansen, since 2006. It just happened to coincide with the first time I took the leap into being a creative entrepreneur, starting my own small design consultancy, as well as co-founding a magazine about underwater photography. His music was a constant, motivating soundtrack to my work, and it has been for the past 17 years. In our conversation with Scott, we talked about his childhood influences, his enduring nostalgia for the 80s, how graphic design led him to music, and the importance of cultivating attention and observation as a foundation of his creative process. And at the end of the episode, we'll share a post-show discussion with takeaways from the conversation, and you'll get to hear Tycho's new single. It's called Small Sanctuary. You can find all his music at tychomusic.com. Grab your headphones, and let's get started. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now, back to the show. Scott Hansen, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Before we got started, I was mentioning that I followed your work for a very long time, since 2006, and your music's kind of a constant soundtrack for my creative work. So thank you for all you've done over the years. But yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely uh, lends itself well to that kind of activity, I think. So we want to kind of take a deep dive and you know delve into your history a bit. You grew up in Sacramento, not far from me. We're roughly the same age. I was born in 1976, and I grew up in Napa, so I was, wasn't far from you. Curious how your childhood influenced your creativity, your design, your music. I think the, like, I've kind of always been chasing after this thing. Like We moved from one kind of suburb of Sacramento that was closer to the city to a further flung one that was still kind of like in development. It was still in transition from a rural agricultural community to what it ended up becoming, which was just like, you know, dense suburban residential area. So like, but well, when I got there, it was just all these beautiful fields and streams and flowing 
bluffs down into the river. You know, the river's obviously still there and it's, it's still pretty around there. But, you know, literally we lived on the edge of what was like a, basically like a horse farm or something. You know, it's just like horses. So there's all these little barns and like, you know, getting to explore all that stuff and this bucolic sort of backdrop to my youth and running and playing outside and, and swimming and whatever. That just all like came together. I think later in my life, I, I realized like I was always chasing trying to speak to that experience and try to speak to the feeling that I had when I was in those spaces and, and when I was engaged in those activities. And I think I'm still chasing that down, you know, like trying to like put that into music because I've never felt like I could express the way I felt with words. What is it about that? I mean, so I totally understand there's like a sense of nostalgia of, of time and place, but what is it about that that has drawn you and your creative work to those moments and not to present moments or future moments or some other parts of your life? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a pretty sentimental person and, and I definitely spend most of my life <laughs> looking to the past. I think for better or for worse, that's just kind of the way I see the world. And yeah, so the, I'm always sort of like trying to eulogize or enshrine <laughs> these past experiences in, in some way through art. You know, it's interesting, Eli and I were talking earlier when I was a younger man and I too am roughly the same age that grew up in a different part of the world. When I was a younger man, I never understood adults who were nostalgic, who would look back and sort of pine for the past, because I always felt as a young man, like, why aren't you excited about the future and what can become? And now, as an adult who's approaching 50, I find myself so nostalgic about childhood and this kind of open system and freedom and discovery and wonderment of that time. And it's not that I want to go back to it. But it's gone, you know, it's like you can't touch it again. And there's something so painful and beautiful at the same time. I wonder how you think about nostalgia. Like, what does nostalgia mean for you? Do you want to go back to that time? I mean, yeah, I wrestle with that all the time. Like, I, I ask myself that all the time. Like, why do you obsess over these things? Do you actually want to be back there? And I think the answer is no. I was talking to my wife the other day. We were just talking about like, if you could have anything just wish granted, what would it be? And I think it would be to like go back to Sacramento in like the 70s, like right before, or right around when I was born and be able to just cruise around and check the place out and see what life was like and see what the world was like, just because I have this vague memory of that time and mostly only the, you know, the early 80s was my first memory. So I think it's always like that thing right before <laughs> your memories, you know, that that's the most interesting thing to me. I have kids now. And like seeing them experience these things, it makes it even more poignant, I guess. And it's just, yeah, the fleeting elements of that and just, there's a freedom and there's just something different. It's a different time and you don't realize how fast it all goes by until you see your kids going through it and you're just like, man, the whole thing, it just disappears in an instant. It's just nice to look back on those times. I want to come back to your kids and having kids because I think that's a kind of recent phenomenon for you. And Aaron and I both have kids that are maybe a little, little bit older, but I want to kind of go back to your early days in the design world. The way that I discovered you is actually through your portfolio site. I think back in 2006, ISO50.com. I was like, wow, this is so cool. This is back in the days of you know, skeuomorphic design. There's like wood paneling <laughs> yeah, yeah. and stuff. And it was all flash-based. And I actually went back through the Wayback Machine to go check it out. It's still sort of like semi-functional. They were like wrapped in like a, some kind of flash player embed that still works. <laughs> That's surprising. Yeah. I'm just curious, like, what got you into design as the first part of your career? And then how did you springboard from that into music? I just always drew as a kid. I was never a musician until I was like an adult. I didn't start with music till about 20. But I was always drawing, like, obsessively as a kid. 
that was kind of my outlet. And then the second I got a computer and realized, you know, when I went away to college and realized like you could use it, you know, I figured out what Photoshop was and all that stuff. That was it. I was hooked. I just started messing around with like web design and got a job. Actually, I worked, <laughs> the first job I had, I, I was just doing tech support for a hosting company because I had had this little like computer help business in my town, like where I'd put up flyers that said like, if you need help with computers, call this number and I'd go help like old ladies and stuff, <laughs> set up their mm -hmm. printers. Yeah, that was like, oh, like IT, maybe that's the thing, you know, maybe that's my career path. So uh, I ended up working at a hosting company doing tech support. And then I would just mess around on Photoshop and the manager walked by me one day and saw that I was using, he's like, what, well, you know how to use Photoshop? He's like, we have all these mailers and flyers we need to do. So I started doing all their in-house like graphics and stuff and then ended up doing the web design for their main site and then, you know, springboarded from that. So it was all based on the web. And then I ended up doing application interface stuff like UX, but all the while I was doing like poster art and print work on the side because I thought that was what was really cool and what I wanted to eventually end up doing. Did you have some early web design heroes and influences back in the day? I mean, there was like Katen K, Joshua Davis, lots of other folks in the early 2000s. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's so many. What was it, Too Extreme or something? <laughs> that site was crazy. That flash site, I forgot what it was called. But Arnaud Mercier was my design idol. And he ended up like, I would email him and he just, he would email me back and like, it was amazing what he he shared with me, like all the information he shared. Like I would ask like, oh, how'd you take this photo? And he explained how he like did slide photography. And that was where the name ISO 50 came from. He used a Fuji Velvia ISO 50 slide film. And it just had this really deep, like rich saturation. I learned so much from him and his site, Elixir Studio. It's not up anymore, but you can see like a retrospective of his work at area17.com. But he passed away a number of years ago, but he's just a great guy. And he was definitely my design idol and the biggest influence I ever had. One of the interviews I listened to with you that was maybe a little older, but you talked about you know, coming into music. Like you said, you weren't a musician, but you had, were something more of a technologist, essentially. You understood technology and how to build things on the web. How did that kind of affect the way that you took your creative process? You know, this music can often be this kind of more freeform world, and we think of technology being a bit more constrained. How did you kind of bridge those two? That's exactly it. I think for me... My grandpa was like really, uh, you know, a hobbyist computer builder back, you know, in the 70s and 80s when it wasn't, you know, you didn't just roll down to, you know, go to newegg.com or whatever, but he was really into it and he showed me how all that stuff worked. And I think I kind of inherited either through, you know, the experience or just something ingrained in us, that love of exploring machines and figuring out how they worked. And I really thought of them as like sort of entertainment devices, I guess. I played mostly video games on them. And I guess I used like CompuServe and stuff like that, but I didn't understand them as tools and it's certainly not as creative tools until much later. But I think just the fact that I had developed this passion for working with and trying to learn how machines work, I think that was the first step. And then starting to mess with samplers and drum machines and all these things that are essentially computers designed to be you know, musical tools. I think that was what really paved the way for me to get into it. Because to me, quote unquote, real instruments, like what I was used to, traditional stuff like drums and bass and guitars, like that used to as in seeing people play them and seeing the bands that I like play them, that seemed so foreign. That just seemed like off limits to me. That that wasn't something that I was ever going to be able to do or for whatever reason, I have no idea now looking back why I didn't just jump into those things. But yeah, so the technology was the vector that allowed me to say, okay, that's something I understand and I feel like I belong and this is something I can do, you know? 
I'm curious in those early days as you're starting to kind of like refine your creative sensibilities, both as a designer at first and then as a musician, how you started to cultivate your attention, because that's a really important part of being a creative person is just paying attention, paying attention to the world around you, the tools, the way other creative people make things, the very specifics, even that name ISO 50, like clearly you're, you're really paying attention were there, I don't know, moments where you like you started to recognize that if I pay attention to the details that I could be a more creative person? I think that just was just part of my nature, I guess, because you know how back in those days everybody was diagnosed with ADHD or whatever, ADD as they called it when I was a kid. So I was diagnosed with that and whatever, took the pills for a while and it changed me in this really weird way. Like I became much better in school and I was able to pay attention and all that stuff, but I felt like it wasn't me. Or, you know, it just, it just something felt off about it, so I quit and then ended up doing horrible <laughs> almost not graduating high school. I clearly had this, like, thing in there. And, you know, like, hyper-focus, I think, is an aspect to that, but only things that, obviously, that you're interested in. And, and it wasn't until once I found out computers could make graphics and machines could make music, that was, like, hyper-focused to a fault. I don't know what the word is, but, you know, like, overworking yourself and, like, almost, you know, pushing yourself too far and working all, you know, staying up all night, just working on these problems and just spinning your wheels. I learned so much so fast, but, you know, obviously in, in hindsight, it's not the healthiest way, but yeah, I guess that was just something in there. And, and once I found an outlet for it, it just kind of exploded. It's so interesting that you had ADHD or you have it. And that's kind of like the way that your brain operates. There's so many people in Silicon Valley, in the tech and design space that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of neurodiversity and a lot of ADHD and as a kid, as you described, it's seen as like a negative, like this is a disability to overcome. I wonder if you see it as an adult now, because clearly like it wasn't a disability for you once you recognized it and embraced it. It allowed you to focus in a way that others may not have. How do you think about ADHD in your work today? I think it's obviously a net positive for me. I do find that I have to fight my instincts sometimes to like drill down into these problems. I've been really thinking about this a lot lately because I spent the last three years thinking about process, thinking a lot about my process and how I go about doing things and how can I either refine it or how can I just change it to like find different results? Because, you know, 25 years into my musical career, it's difficult to try to make things sound different or feel different. I guess for me, like analyzing that process, I realized I do spend a lot of time focused on, I want to say meaningless just because it ends up being fruitless. Like whatever this thing that you're drilling down on and you're spinning your wheels on, it ends up, nothing comes out of it. And it's almost like an obsessive indulgence or maybe a distraction from having to do things that have real consequences or are difficult as in, you know, like being creative. I can't just sit down and say, I'm going to write a beautiful piano melody, but I can sit down and edit snares for three hours, you know? And I can tell myself, oh, I just accomplished something. But it's like, did you really? You really just, I don't know. It's this weird feedback loop. So I've been trying to fight that and be like, stop. That doesn't matter. Move on and do something a little bit more creative or just different. And hopefully that kickstarts things. It's great that you want to talk about process. This series we're working on is all about creative process. So we want to definitely dive into that. Before we leap over there, though, I'm wondering, you know, Ira Glass has this great little clip that's been turned into video. You may have run into it where he talks about this idea of, you know, having taste as you're, you know, becoming an adult, you'd sort of develop the sense of taste and aesthetics, but your skills haven't quite caught up to what your taste might be. And it takes, you know, 
years of work potentially do that. Do you remember a time for yourself where you felt like your skills were kind of catching up to what your aesthetics and tastes were? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, looking back at my life and my career, I think it's this interesting like curve where these two points meet of true, your skill, you know, the line goes up for your skill and your taste, maybe that's static. That seems to be something that's sort of innate. You definitely learn to appreciate different things, but I think, you know, the things that you gravitate towards or that are meaningful to you are just in there, or at least for me, that's how it's always felt. But then I feel like inspiration is this other line that's going down constantly. Or maybe, I don't know about inspiration, but just like the desire to go spend 12 hours trying to like solve this musical problem or this design problem. That thing is constantly going down and you hope that your skill is going up enough to like sort of <laughs> even it out, I guess. That's how I've kind of seen this point in my career. And that is why I've focused so much on process now is because I want to remove as many barriers as possible because I've realized I'm getting, I don't know if bored's the word because I still am excited about this, but I'm getting lazy maybe or just weak in my, <laughs> in my old age. I can't just like power through these things like I used to and like brute force everything. Kids don't make it any easier, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's interesting. So that is something that I've really been focused on. And, and that is also why I focused on, I, I knew that was coming. So I was like, okay, you need to become far more efficient if you're going to do this. But the children honestly have been the most incredible effect on my workflow and my productivity because they forced me to stop spinning my wheels. Every couple hours, I'll have to like pick up some slack, you know, because I definitely do carve out a chunk of hours in the middle of the day where it's like, okay, this is what I'm working. But you know, you're going upstairs because I, I work from home, luckily. So there's all these constant distractions, which actually ends up for me, I found being a good thing because you walk away, you get a fresh head and you come back and you're like, okay, what was I working on? That wasn't really that important. Or maybe I have some new insight on it that leaving and getting some perspective or just clearing your head can help. On that topic of making space for yourself, you've mentioned before in interviews that you're a surfer, I'm a surfer too. I don't think you have your video on, but see a surfboard behind me if you do on my wall. For me, it, that's always been a really important part of kind of making space for solving problems, stepping away from something, just clearing my mind. And it sounds like, you know, nature in general is very much an inspiration for you. And also maybe that chance to leave space for you to explore creative problems and part of your process. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting water in general, like I grew up by the river and I spent a lot of time in the river and in creeks and in lakes and stuff around Sacramento. That's always just been this really, really meaningful, sacred experience is like swimming in fresh water. And surfing for me was, I can't do it that much anymore. I hurt my shoulder and then I moved away from the ocean <laughs> and then I got kids and all, all these other things. So I definitely don't get out much anymore. But that for me ended up being like this extreme version of it where there was something about the fear and the unknown of the ocean. Like the ocean has always been this very foreign thing to me. I didn't really spend much time there as a kid. There was something about that, the fear and the unknown of that experience that always really, really centered me. And I'd go early in the morning and then come back to work. And this was mostly during the years I was writing and working on weather and simulcast. And I just remember feeling like the most centered and mentally stable I had ever felt in my life the days after I surfed in the morning. You spent a long time operating as a solo artist, making music, presumably editing beats and synths and stuff for hours. And then in the past, rough estimate, what, six years or so, you started to bring other people into your process. And that could be maybe a little scary and maybe feel a little dangerous too. I'm curious how 
bringing other people into performances and, and maybe even process has changed the way you work and the way you think about music? Yeah, you know, it's really been longer than that. Zach, the guitarist and bassist, we've known each other forever. And we actually started playing shows in like 2006. And then he played on a couple tracks, a few tracks on Dive. And then Awake, of course, that was kind of like when Rory came in and we were operating for the most part as a band in, in a lot of ways. So, you know, it's really been most of the modern era of what people think of as Tycho has always been a collaborative process on some level. Dive less so than everything that came after it. There was only really one album before that was Passes Prologue. So I've kind of always worked in that way. I've always loved sampling. I've always loved using samples. Like, you know, Dive was me trying to make my own instruments sound like samples. I think the collaborative process has been really inspiring. I've always liked the idea of taking elements from outside that you yourself didn't think of because I think the way that you treat those things and the way that you work with them in the context of a production or a song, I think is going to be very different than if it's something you wrote. Or at least for me, you know, that I feel like I get precious about things or I think like that's the way it's supposed to sound or this is the pattern or this is exactly how it's supposed to be played. And there's a sort of tendency for me to like live with that. Whereas when you record another musician and then take it in and start to work with it and manipulate it, I think there can be something a little bit freeing and more spontaneous about that process for me. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash design better today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash design better. Support for design better comes from our friends at crash plan. Visit crashplan.com slash design better for 50% off your first year of crash plan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game. If you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, Buy as many user licenses as you need and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for DesignBetter comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. 
Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to the show. In 2019, with your album Weather, you started to explore vocals more in your tracks. And one thing you said in an interview is that you learned more about instrumental music through making a vocal record than you had in all the prior years. What was it about that that kind of shifted your creative process, or what did you learn through that experience? Yeah, I think it's just the voice is such a complex instrument and it occupies so much space in the frequency spectrum or it needs to hold its space, you know, and it needs to kind of sit and you can't run over it. Whereas with synths, I'm always just layering and layering in guitars and all this stuff and drenching them in reverb and the voice just has to be treated in a different way. I set out for that record to be a very traditional kind of like, this is a vocal song and the vocals live here. They're not chopped up. It's not super affected. I love doing that stuff, but I wanted this to be like more of a pure verse chorus vocal. The songs that did have vocals on them, I wanted them to be, you know, very literal in that sense. I think it just taught me a lot about where things need to sit and where instruments need to sit and the, the structure of songs and more about traditional music, just because I had always been doing these freeform Boards of Canada, drum and bass inspired, you know, electronic music, basically where it's like there aren't too many rules and it's sort of these open-ended meandering compositions. So that forced me to be much more thoughtful about the structure of the song instead of kind of be freeform. I'm not saying one's better than the other. It was a, it was just an, a great exercise and I learned a ton during it. You said a minute ago that sometimes you get too precious about certain aspects of a song and that's the danger of any creative process is that you create a thing that feels magical and beautiful, but it's not quite connected to the rest of the system just yet. And in trying to build the system around it, you end up killing the creative process altogether. How do you confront those situations? How do you kill your darlings, if at all? <laughs> you know, I never did. I, I was always really, really precious. I always had this thing I felt like I was trying to achieve or say or like here's the logical extreme of whatever it is that I started out in this thing for, you know? I always felt like I was constantly 
inching closer and closer to that. I don't think I ever really achieved it perfectly or, or how I envisioned it, but I felt satisfied, I think, after weather and simulcast that I had explored every angle of that stuff, whether it's by a limitation of my own skills or some ceiling on what I'm going to be capable of musically. I just felt like I did everything I set out to do, or I at least tried. <laughs> and so now it's interesting with this record, and I've spent so much more time on this record. I spent like the last five years on it, just playing around with ideas and not focusing on anything too much, just writing a song a day, that kind of thing. You know, I found it's been really freeing because I don't have anything left that I have to say. So I'm just kind of trying things and seeing what happens. And that's been super inspiring. So of course, it's like the paradox, you know, when you're not trying and you don't care, that's when the coolest things happen because you aren't sitting there being like, that has to be this way. And you're just kind of letting things flow. That's been a really cool learning experience about this one is that once you feel like you've said what you have to say, what comes next is sort of the unknown. And there's something really beautiful about that. There's some really strong themes that run through both your music and your design work as it relates to like posters for your music. And if you rewind a bit back, you can still see the relationship between your earlier work and now. And if I hear a Tycho song, I feel like I know it's a Tycho song by the kind of themes <laughs> that carry through. When did you land on that? What was the process of getting to that point where you had this sort of brand identity for your work? Yeah, I think it just kind of was a natural progression. That's, that's the stuff that happens when I sit down to make music or design, those are the things that come out and those are the things I gravitate towards. It's interesting because, you know, throughout my career, you know, as an artist, you're always constantly feeling this pressure to like evolve or change or, you know, not be one note and not be like, oh, of course, like <laughs> there's that same synth sound again, or there's that graphic element again. And so I was always sort of fighting those things, obviously not very hard because <laughs> clearly there is this common theme, but, you know, then I would hear people how they would react to like a new album or something. And they'd be like, oh, this feels like the other albums or there's this common thread or whatever. So I used to kind of see that as like a negative, like, oh no, like this album isn't different, but there's something powerful about like having that kind of theme and that recognizable element being ever present throughout all your work. So we were saying before we hit the record button that both Eli and I listen to your music pretty regularly, especially if we're doing something creative. There's something about your music that is sort of like brings creative energy to work, at least for me. And it's strange that there are a lot of other designers we've talked with who've said the same thing, that they put their headphones on, they listen to Tycho, and they focus on their work. And it feels great and brings something to their process. Is that something you're aware of? Is there some intentionality to that? How do you think about that? There isn't an intentionality, but I, you know, I think I come from that world and those are the types of things that I spend my time doing. So I think my meditation, which is music, apparently, you know, that translates in some way that it can be a meditation for people engaging in the same similar pursuits. But it's also that, like you said, you found the music through the blog, ISO 50. Early on, when we'd have show, play shows or I'd go to like design conferences and meet people who were into my work, it'd always be like almost always creative professionals, like working in design or film or whatever. I always was like, oh, that's probably because they discovered me through the blog, which for the most part, that was the case. <laughs> so it's like a chicken or the egg type thing or whatever. But I feel like over time, I realized I thought that that was why so many people played it during their work. But these days, that's a small group of people, I think, at this point who even remember that or discovered the music that way. And I think people are clearly still discovering and using in that way. So like, I think that just must be something inherent to the music. 
you feel that there are any parallels or similarities between your creative process for music and the design work you do? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there's tons. I really don't do a ton of design, you know, like I do the covers, all the stuff for Tycho, like posters and covers and stuff, but it's not like it used to be where I was churning out client work and personal work all day, every day. I think the layering and the approach to sampling sort of, or resampling your own work and using it, you know, manipulating it in that way, I think that's always been a big part of it. But I think the sort of deeply layered collage type effect of a lot of my design around 2006 through probably 2013 before I really embraced minimalism. I think that's always been the way that I make music. And I think the music still kind of sounds like those images look. Do you do like limited edition runs of any of your design work? I used to. I used to have a huge Epson with 44-inch printer. I don't remember what it was, 9900 or something. Yeah, I ran that in my kitchen for almost a decade and we printed those they were so cool like you know we do like lithographs just lithos and sell those those weren't limited but the stuff we did at the studio it looks so cool like all that g clay i guess g clay is the word they use for that yeah i've actually it's weird i've been thinking about doing that again it's just so time consuming but i just the output of those things is just so beautiful and it's the only time i really feel that it represents the art you know whatever my intention was that that comes out the clearest in that process because you know when you go to litho you're always dependent on their system and their workflow and you can't like be making infinite edits but back in those days i was just i'd run off a copy and be like oh that's a little too yellow and i back it off and you know get the design exactly the way i wanted yeah i have a canon printer here but i used to have epsons i used to do a lot of photography in fact that's one of the things that first drew me to your side is i used to shoot with a leica and iso 50 slide film a lot so that kind of resonated oh with nice me. <laughs> but yeah uh, yeah 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 and, I, and I, I love that idea of like being able to you know really touch the work and connect with it and then there's also sort of this experimental nature where you may have intended something and it turns out slightly different but it's something that you like and i'm wondering this is sort of a bit of a pivot but your music it seems like it's sort of electronic as a category but you put a lot of work into making it feel and sound sort of kind of a little more rough around the edges and analog to some degree have you experimented at all with things like generative ai and how that might play into your process or does that feel something that's just like it's too much on the side of the robotic and too distance from the human hand. You know, that part of it doesn't really bother me just because I've always thought of using technology in a creative way. That That's not something that bothers me. This just seems like an evolution of that idea. But AI is like this buzzword. In, I mean, it's a buzzword everywhere. But in audio particularly, it seems like people are using the term AI to describe software that just is better than, (laughs) I don't know what's so AI about, I guess like neural networks, some of the stuff. So I do use some neural network plugins that leverage neural networks, I guess, or at least that's what their marketing material (laughs) says they're doing. Like Waves, Clarity VX, you know, it can remove like basically background noise and isolate a vocal for like field recordings and samples and stuff. It's really helpful. And then I use like a neural network amp modeler, Tonex by Amplitude. So stuff like that. I think that using those tools for signal processing is something I've completely embraced. But as far as generative, I have not gotten into that yet, but that just may be a matter of time until I find you know the right tool that I connect with. One thing I find fascinating is when creative thinkers stay connected to technology one way or another. It doesn't have to be AI, but all kinds of different things can be technology. And clearly you're experimenting with lots of digital technologies. I recently saw Herbie Hancock, who, you know, he's in his 80s and people don't know, but he's got an engineering degree. And 
he stays connected to technology in his work, even though he's classically trained. He's one of the most talented jazz musicians on the planet, if not the most talented jazz musician. And technology, like on stage, he's using vocoders, he's using all kinds of synths, you know, modeling and so forth. It's just part of his process. I'm curious, like, how do you think about technology in your work and how does technology end up changing your creative process? It's impossible <laughs> for me to decouple those two things. I mean, technology is why I do this, or it was the way that I was able to do this, and it's everything, you know, it's connected to everything. I think of the computer as my instrument, and all the other things are sort of just different elements or modules that you plug into that instrument and make it behave in a different way. So it's impossible for me to decouple those things. There's like this DAW-less movement where people don't use DAWs, they just use recorders, and they try to like do everything by bouncing stuff back and forth. And that's actually how I started out writing music. I didn't understand the audio part of computers enough to like have a proper interface and all that stuff. So I didn't really realize the computer could do all that. I was just using like a sampler and bouncing tracks down and stuff. But I look back on that process and be like, oh, that, you know, I wrote music in a different way. And there's this simplicity and purity to the whole thing that I feel like gets lost sometimes when you have too many tools at your disposal, maybe. And I think that is something, especially now with what's available as far as like software that every creative, I think, kind of has to fight. And that's that sort of option paralysis slash too many toys or like fun, interesting new ways to do the same thing instead of, you know, maybe I have 20 reverb plugins on my computer, but I, I probably have only mastered maybe one of them. You know, the rest, I'm just like, oh, when I pull up this preset, it sounds cool. And I use it just for that preset and that's the end of it. And I use this other plugin and who knows? I, I don't know, but you know, I, I got so much mileage out of like, the reverb that was on my Novation KS4 synth back in the day, I had total control over that thing and I, I did really creative things with it. You got to strike a balance and you know you have to leverage all these tools and all these options, but at the same time, you don't want to let them constrain you. So we're talking a little bit about you had kids, I think somewhat recently from what I've read from other interviews, Aaron and I have kids that are approaching their teenage years and well, my youngest is oh, well. my, my older one's 12. These are little it's intense. It's intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Prepare yourself. Uh, yeah. From what I've seen, I'm not looking forward to it, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. So we want to know, like, how did that influence your creative process, the way you work? Obviously, it affects your schedule, but what are some of the other things that it brought to the work you do? Yeah. So I, I have a two-year-old and a seven-week-old. So Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I just got a little little guy. Yeah, he's amazing. But it's interesting because it all coincided with COVID as well. We we had been planning this and then COVID hit and then we had our daughter and then we decided, okay, well, we decided we definitely wanted to have a second kid. And so that kind of ended up being this huge break for me. Like we were forced to stop touring in early 2020 during weather. And, you know, I had been going like nonstop for 10 years at that point, tour, album, tour, album, tour, album, like everything all the time, never ending. And I'd never given myself a break or taken a step back. And COVID first forced me to stop touring. And then the kids forced me to like take a step back from work and reevaluate what's life about and what's your work about. And when all this is said and done, like what can you actually look back and be like, I'm really happy that I spent 90% of my life <laughs> doing this or that. And, you know, yeah, the kids, I, I think just like pretty universal experience, you know, they, they give you perspective and they make you realize what's important. And, you know, I absolutely am so passionate about music and maybe more so than ever, because I've had that break and that perspective and that chance to step back. So it's just been this incredible balancing influence in my life. And I feel really fortunate for it. 
Scott, what are you reading or watching or listening to that's inspiring you? Yeah, <laughs> I do not have time to do any of those things anymore. I have time to work and take care of babies. But you know what's sad is I, I just really don't read that much. I never have. I've never been a reader. I read like technical stuff online, like learning how to use stuff. But it's crazy because I love reading. And every time I found a book that I love, I get like so engrossed in it that I read it in like a week. But it's been a long time since that happened. But my friend Tobias Rose Stockwell, he just sent me this. It's called Outrage Machine, How Tech Amplifies Discontent disrupt democracy and what we can do about it. So that's going to be the first book I've read in a long time, but it's also really poignant for me just because like, you know, social media and the way I've seen it evolve since the blog years and the way it's played a role in my career and, and my psyche and my own perspective on my own work has just been kind of this crazy fever pitch type thing that has just ramped up, particularly in recent years. And I've just been really wrestling with what that means and how to embrace the necessity to engage in these things and somehow have a thick enough skin to, to not let it affect my work, which I feel like I've made the mistake of doing in the past. Can we dig into that a little bit more? Because that's something that I hadn't even considered is just like in times like these where anyone can have a voice and you know comment on your work without having any context or backstory about what you've been doing, your body of work and so forth. How do you think about engaging with your audience and your fans, but also protect yourself as a human being and protect your creative process? Because too much influence and it can really change your creative process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like to think that when I'm sitting down and I'm engrossed and I'm in the zone, just like making music or whatever, and, and you're just kind of in this almost subconscious state. I don't think those things are working their way in. You know, I, I don't find myself sitting there and thinking about like, what are people going to think of this, <laughs> you know, this song or whatever. I definitely think of it after the fact when it's time to decide like what song maybe goes on the album or what does this album kind of look like? You know, certainly it has this overarching effect, but I've found myself to be a very self-conscious person. I think I always have been and sensitive, <laughs> very sensitive apparently about other people's opinions of my work. And, you know, being an underground artist all those years and, it's almost like you're preaching to the choir, you know? And, you know, you kind of have to remember, don't believe the praise and don't believe the negative stuff. It all lies somewhere in the middle and none of it matters anyways, I guess, at the end of the day. But to answer your question, I, I guess I love engaging with people online and I, I love hearing people's stories about how the music has affected them or how it's been a positive influence in their life. And, you know, constructive criticism is also a really useful thing and, and I do welcome it. And I do just feel like there's like this, with weather at least, you know, we did, I did the vocal thing, and I think that threw a lot of people off, especially older fans, and, and they got kind of like, what is this? This isn't Tycho, and it's four songs out of 50 or 60 songs over a career. It's not the end of the world, but it was for some people, and they wrote these just, you know, they just wrote really mean stuff that had no value other than being an outlet for whatever they, you know, I get it. I think maybe they felt like they invested themselves in this thing. And then I went and pulled the rug out from under them and that can be hurtful and, and they can feel like they've lost something that was meaningful to them. But for me, I was kind of like, man, all those songs are still, <laughs> they're still on Spotify. We're not pulling down the back catalog. I go back and forth and I think I've finally come out of the woods on that one. Like I, I don't feel as hurt by that thing or like, or as affected, I guess would be the word. I don't think it's affecting me on a daily basis, but it has certainly changed my relationship with social media and made me just hyper aware of anything that I post or any way that I interact through those mediums. It's changed that. Scott, well, for what it's worth, I'm just one fan among many, but I'd say keep experimenting. Love everything you're doing. 
Where, other than Spotify, obviously people can find your music, but where else can folks find your posters or what you're up to right now? I think Instagram is kind of like the place that I post most of what's going on in the moment. TycoMusic.com is the site where we have tour information and all that stuff. But yeah, it's all collected in those two sites. Awesome. Scott Hansen, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I think it's fascinating to talk to Tycho after listening to his music for years and years, just to try to understand a little bit about the background of where his music comes from. And also just as a person who occupies two creative spaces, music and design, I think that's pretty unique to get some insights into his process. Yeah, absolutely. And before we hit record, I was just saying his music came to me that's really interesting, formative part of my career where I was also shifting away from a product design career, physical products to more like digital web design, graphic design. And so that soundtrack is kind of embedded in my life as a, this point of change and taking on this new sort of more entrepreneurial path versus being a, a full-time employee somewhere else. Yeah, I really liked what he had to say about ADHD and how he kind of shared how that affected his life. I think there are a lot of people out there with ADHD that that's the way that their brain works. And for so long, it's kind of seen by society, by teachers, by academia as like, this is a deficiency. You need to sit still and pay attention. And for some people, it's just almost impossible to do. It's painful and difficult to pull off. And then it becomes this superpower that you can go deeper into a subject when you find a thing that you're passionate about and oftentimes, people with ADHD who have suffered because of the way they've been viewed, they succeed because of it in their adulthood. Yeah, that's really true. And it's part of it is this the foundations of our educational system, at least here in the US, are very much around this sort of outdated notion that arrived with you know industrial processes where we want to train employees that can sit in their butts in a chair for eight hours straight and work on one thing. And so that's essentially how we're still training kids when really at this point in time, creative work is so much more important and you're kind of cutting a lot of that off for making people, kids sit still for you know however many hours a day and not explore the things they're really interested in like Scott was doing. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, it, it's almost like the ADHD mind and habits are kind of tailor-made for creative thinking because you're shifting focus on a lot of different things and then finding a thing that you're passionate about and going very deep. And you know, creativity is often described as bringing sometimes conflicting or different ideas together in unique ways. And that type of mind is well-tuned for that process. Yeah, it's true too, for, in a different way, I think for folks who have dyslexia, my uncle and my cousins has dyslexia. And for my uncle especially, struggling for many, many years to just learn how to read taught him some amount of resilience and kind of hustle and grit. And he became a successful entrepreneur. And I think that's a somewhat common story that folks that face that particular challenge, not that it always goes well, but gives you a leg up just because of the hurdles you've had to face across your growing up and career. I mean, the other thing that's really interesting about Tycho in particular is that, you know, he talked about how his work was so inextricably linked with technology that being creative and the way that he wants to be creative isn't possible without technology. I think it's pretty awesome these days. Like there's so many different ways that we can approach 
our work. We can bring in different types of tools and kind of challenge our creative process. And if we're not careful, as Scott said, you can get lost in the tinkering and the toy part and spend, you know, 12 hours playing with a synth and, and not making the music. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's just also such a wealth of information out there that I remember, you know, trying to work on entrepreneurial projects and then just getting sort of sucked into hacker news because that's where, you know, like people are building stuff and learning these new technologies. And I realized I'd wasted half a day just reading sort of irrelevant articles, interesting articles, but irrelevant ones when I could have been actually doing the work instead. So Eli, you've probably logged more hours listening to Scott's music than me since you've discovered him before I did. Was there anything in the course of the conversation that kind of surprised you about how he approaches his work that you hadn't anticipated? Not so much a surprise, but what interested me like we were talking again before hitting record about how it's neat to meet somebody whose work you know really well and how his personality and the way he comes across it's clear that Tycho is him to some degree you know there's just such an overlap between his personality and the way he thinks about things and his music and also his you know design work but that to me was a cool thing to see and i think that you look at other artists and designers and creatives and they're personality often comes across so strong in their work not always and sometimes people's work is very diverse and exploratory but for some folks there's a clear link there how about you anything surprise you how important his childhood was was really surprising to me and nostalgia and the role that that plays in his work i thought was pretty fascinating just sort of like a time and a place imprinting on you so powerfully and you know, it's one thing as I get a little bit older that that just becomes clearer to me that the time and place is powerful in ways that the present is not yet. It may be at some point, but it is not currently until it's past and gone. And I thought that that was sort of an interesting thing, especially for designers who are you know doing work professionally, maybe doing user experience design and so forth, where we're really focused on the needs and the perspectives of other people. That's the core of what makes good work. And then there's also this connecting to your own humanity that I think there's space for that in our work, not in all places, but in some places. And that comes through with somebody like Scott. I mean, he is, he's an artist. He's doing graphic design in that he is using the tools of the trade, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator and, and so forth. But he's making things that tell his story that he connects with and same with his music. So that's something that designers often lose touch with. And even if they're not able to express that fully in professional work, it is something that can be done on the side. Just work for yourself that that feels exciting, like building a personal website. And I think it's fascinating that someone like him who's had a lot of success, has had a long career, he's still like making stuff and putting it out there in the world on Instagram, on his website, on various places. Like he's still creative and, and still making things. Yeah. I think uh, the idea of having a point of view and then balancing it with understanding the needs of the people you're designing for is important. And then also just to developing kind of aesthetic sensibilities. I think we've talked before about how I feel like right now, at least in the program where I teach, it's lacking a little bit. When I was going through it, we had a real strong connection to the art department and that's sort of severed a bit. And I see that with our students, like there's a real hunger for that, but there's sort of a lack of a foundation there in some cases. And I think 
having that aesthetic training and some amount of experience in delivering design that's really more exploratory and it's more about like exploring the processes and tools that are available to you and understanding them. And then you can go out and do work that's a bit more constrained and, you know, client briefs and et cetera. But I think that's an important thing to have a foundation with. Yeah. There's also something about operating within constraints for so long that you lose track of how to cross the border of those constraints, which is why having other creative pursuits outside of work is so very valuable. Yep, absolutely. Well, fascinating to talk to Scott Hansen, Tycho. I think I might go spin a couple of his records here. Sounds great. Me too. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.